You're listening to the Global Ooj Podcast, where every week we learn about the world through the eyes of entrepreneurship. With your host, Ujwal Velagapudi. A seasoned corporate IT professional, Ziv Nakajima Magen, made the shift towards real estate investing along with his wife to start Nippon Tradings. They're a buyer's agency and portfolio manager helping foreign investors buy, sell, and manage your real estate properties in Japan. Ziv takes us through the Japanese real estate market, different asset classes, how they assist investors from all over the world, and cultural barriers that almost require a foreign investor to have a partner like Nippon Tradings to invest in Japan. Welcome to the show. Thanks, great to be here. So Ziv, can you tell us a little bit about what Nippon Tradings is and give a high-level overview of exactly the services within the real estate market that you provide in Japan and how you interact with foreign investors as well? Sure. So we set up shop about nine years ago now, uh, my wife and I, and the reason for it was that we wanted to invest our own savings, our own funds into Japanese real estate for various reasons that we can probably get into later. And then we realized that the country is pretty insulated as far as uh, foreigner access goes. So if, for example, other parts of the world, if you want to invest in a foreign country, there's going to be a multitude of agents or professionals who will want to work with you as a foreign investor. And then you'll have to sort of um, sift through the masses to find the ones that are actually reliable and offer a good product. Whereas here it's, it's completely the other way around. So most of the professionals that you work with in Japan, um, there are bad apples, of course, but they're very rare. So most of them are very honest and straightforward and the product is good, but it's really, really difficult to find anybody who will work with anyone who is non-Japanese. So it becomes very difficult for foreigners, especially non-resident foreigners, and even more so ones that don't speak and read and write the language, and very difficult for them to access um, anything in the market. And then even if they do somehow manage to purchase a property, management of the property, communicating on a monthly basis with all the um, third parties involved and opening a bank account and making payments and receiving payments is near impossible if you're not residing in Japan. So once we ended up getting our own few uh, properties and kicked off our own portfolio, we figured that, you know, hey, that might be a service that other people might be interested in. And uh, that's what we started doing. So we, we provide the whole suite of services from um, obviously advice and consultation if anyone needs it. And then property research, due diligence, submitting offers, negotiating whenever possible and conducting settlement all the way through so that the investors or the buyers, unless they're here, don't actually have to come here for the purpose of the purchase itself. And then post-settlement, we provide them with the full gamut of portfolio management services. So we basically work with third parties. So we work with the real estate agents, with, in case of a co-owned building, with the building management company, the property management company that places and handles the tenants, uh, renovation, repair professionals, tax authorities to appoint. I mean, if they do need to um, submit an uh, annual income statement, they will need an accountant, but we can put them in touch with one and then cooperate with the accountant to provide access to the documents that they need. And that's basically... So we're like a single point of contact for anyone who's either not here or is here, but is unable or un unwilling to actually uh, go through the hassles themselves. Would it be safe to say that you have the power attorney on behalf of this foreign investor and your proxy to be able to do everything, A to Z, boots on the ground, 
and facilitate from sourcing the deal and they want to sell and exit all the way to that process. Correct. Proxy is actually the word we uh, we like to use best, but other people are just not that familiar with it. So yeah, we're a buyer's agency pre-purchase and then portfolio management post-purchase, not just for investment. And we've got quite a few customers who are buying uh, holiday homes or homes for their own use if and when they move to Japan, that sort of thing. But 80% of them would be, or maybe even 90% would be investors, yes. Can you talk about the market that you serve? Is it primarily residential? Is it commercial? What space do you focus on for the most part? And it really depends on the investor and, and their own criteria. So we do get approached occasionally by people who are looking for strictly commercial, uh, but that would be the rarity. So usually it would be residential just for the sake, I guess, of um, the stability that residential offers as opposed to commercial. I mean, commercial uh, properties do tend to have the potential to gain more uh, in value and rental income if and when the economy does well. Um, but because since we've been in business, at least, it's been pretty uncertain times globally. So most people prefer the uh, peace of mind that residential tends to offer a bit more. So I'd say probably 70-75% of the properties under management are residential and the rest of them are mixed purpose. So it might be um, a residential kind of block but where the uh, properties can also be used as offices or it could be a small building with a few shops at the ground level. So there is a bit of commercial throw in in there but most of it is residential, yes. Can you talk about why does someone come to you and where is that gap exactly? Can you go a little bit further into that? You mentioned brokers will not to any business for investors or if you're not speaking Japanese, what is a buyer actually looking for when they come to you and what are the gamut of items that they request of your services? Well, there's a few categories of buyers that we usually uh, tend to end up with. So the first category would be people that are familiar with Japan um, and are quite comfortable with the uh, business environment and the, um, the general vibe or atmosphere, I want to say. I mean, Japan is a very uh, regulated, both legally and customs and manners sort of thing. So everything's got a paper trail a mile long. And uh, again, you don't get swindled much. And um, people are just really happy with the Japanese as tenants or to work with Japanese companies. So I guess you'd call them uh, Japanophiles. So people who like Japan for any reason, they've either visited or lived here in the past, and, and then they're interested in investing here as well. Um, and those people, if they're non-resident, again, they have to work with a company like ours. There are some real estate agents and property management companies in the bigger cities that can cater to foreigners. So there'd be maybe a dozen in Tokyo, maybe five or six in Osaka, one or two in Fukuoka and so forth. I mean, obviously, when you have to choose one of these companies, then you don't really have much diversity or choice, especially in the case of property managers. If you do want to replace them for any reason, you're very limited in your selection. If you can only access companies that cater to foreigners. And the other category of investors are people who actually live here. So expats who live in Japan, usually, again, in one of the major cities, but just don't have the time or the language skills, um, or even just the inclination to deal with the hassle that comes with properties. So they want somebody to centralize all of that for them and for them to just be able to make sort of bottom line decisions kind of thing. These are usually pretty busy professional people. And the other category is, again, people who are looking for holiday homes for various reasons or uh, homes in the countryside. And the thing is with Japan, Tokyo, Osaka, Fukuoka, maybe Kyoto would have a few professionals that you can work with. But the further you get from those major city centers, the less and less local companies would be able to wrap their head around the concept of dealing with foreigners. Even if you do speak, read and write the language, just the fact that your name is foreign, that you're clearly not going to be in the vicinity of the property, they can't give you a call or send you a fax 
just turns them off the idea. So they tend to not even return emails or phone calls. They just don't know what to do when a foreigner contacts them. I guess if you're purchasing one or two properties and it's only going to be in a major city, you could potentially get around uh, working directly with companies on the ground. But if you're looking at a more diverse portfolio, a few socioeconomic profiles, a few locations around the country, or if you're looking for a holiday home in the countryside, there just there isn't the infrastructure here to help foreigners do that. So that's when they contact us. And so which part of Japan do you tend to focus on? Where are you guys based out of? And do you like a specific market or do you work in a certain zone or is it uh, really throughout the country? Business-wise, we're nationwide. We're based in Fukuoka in southwestern Japan, which is sort of like the biggest metropolitan center uh, closer to Southeast Asia. So uh, Taiwan, Korea, some parts of China are actually closer to us than Tokyo is. And we live here because, I mean, we started visiting here when we opened the business about nine years ago, simply because at that point in time, that's where the best deals were. And now that's sort of shifted to other locations, again, depending on investor criteria, but we really love the place. So we just stuck around personally. We would recommend to steer away from places that are suffering from population decline or have only got a single industry um, that might be a bit more difficult for resale and tenanting purposes down the track. But otherwise, it's up to the investor. So depending on where they come from, what their profile is, what exactly they're looking for in their portfolio and what other investments they already have, then we would recommend particular cities or towns. So if they're looking more for yield, we'd probably stay away from the major cities, go to prefectural capitals or satellite cities up to an hour away from a major city. And if they're happy with lower yields and they really want the most safe and stable and potential growth oriented property, then we would probably recommend a major city like Tokyo, Osaka, Fukuoka, Nagoya, Kyoto, and so forth. So it really, I mean, we, we don't dictate, we just make recommendations. So it's up to the investor. We try to get an understanding of what the rest of the portfolio looks like, whether it's real estate or not real estate, in which countries they are, what sort of yields, uh, as opposed to a capital growth potential they've got with their other investments. And then we try to complement that uh, with whatever they can, we can get for them here. Can we walk through how a typical buyer would come to you guys from the initial outreach all the way through setting up potentially a close and actually the management. Let's say we take myself, for example, I do have a real estate background within the US. I've worked primarily in commercial real estate investments, and I'm interested in investing globally. So I say, Ziv, I would like to invest in Japan. I have no clue about the market and no idea where to start. I'm, I'm assuming a lot of people would have any interest to invest outside of the US would truly not know a particular market very well unless they really live there or have other business interests. So for example, for me, that would be at the Japanese market. I've never visited. I don't know very much about it, but let's say I have interest in investing. Where would you steer me? I mean, how would you really guide me through the process uh, when I say I do want yield? Can you tell me what that range would really look like? Two, I would want a few properties that are diversified. So instead of going to purchase one asset, I would want some sort of diversification in getting a group or getting maybe a portfolio together. So how would you be able to guide someone like that? Well, the first step would be to understand your budget and what yield actually means for you. So obviously, if your budget is just 100K, for example, there's a limit to the diversity that we can offer. So you'd be limited to mainly condo units or maybe a condo unit in the house you would be limited in your selection of locations as well. I mean, we often get approached by people who only have, say, uh, 30, 40K to invest. And there are properties in Japan that you can get that would generate rental income at 30, 40,000. But they're not going to be in Tokyo. They're not going to be in Osaka. Uh, they're not going to be in Yokohama, Kawasaki, that sort of place. They're going to be in 
maybe Fukuoka or Nagoya, but more on the outer uh, suburbs, not very central. So in that case, we would probably steer you towards prefectural capitals and we would let you know that the maximum net pre-tax yield that you'll be able to get uh, would be eight or nine percent, but you wouldn't have very good potential growth. If your budget is bigger, then we can start talking about diversity and then we can say, okay, well, maybe make 80% of your budget a sort of safe and stable blue chip kind of property in a big central location and then be a bit more adventurous with the remaining budget in another location, maybe get your rental income potentially higher. You'll be um, losing out a little bit on the uh, regrowth potential and so forth. So we would first try to get an idea of what you can budget for. And then based on that, we'll tell you what's achievable or not achievable within that budget. Okay. And it depends on where you're coming from too. I mean, you're coming from the USA mm -hmm. um, and commercial property. So I'm guessing it's a relatively high yield environment compared to say a uh, customer who comes from Singapore or Australia, where if you get three, 4%, that's usually as high as it's going to go. So for those oh. kind of customers, maybe five, six percent is already acceptable. It's higher than what they can get in their own backyard. But if you're coming from the USA or certain countries in Europe, you might not be satisfied with anything less than seven, eight percent, in which right. case we direct you in a, in a different location. So let's say um, I, I do have a certain budget in mind. I come to you guys, we find a few different properties or a few different locations. How does financing work in Japan, especially for a foreign investor? Until about two years ago, that wasn't even an option for non-residents. Now there are a few options open. There are companies in Japan that will lend to non-residents if they set up a Japanese company for the purpose of servicing the loan. Mm -hmm. um, but then, of course, companies come with an annual upkeep cost. So you have to make sure that your um, annual income justifies the two or 3000 that will cost you in accounting and bookkeeping and corporate tax and so forth a year. Um, and then there's at least one more company that I'm aware of which services um, Hong Kong or Taiwanese or Chinese residents, and they don't necessitate setting up a company in Japan. There's another one in Singapore that also services non-residents, but only for individual condos. So you wouldn't be able to use them to purchase a building. And the terms are quite similar for all of them. So there are something between 60 to 70% LTV and somewhere between 3 to 4% annual interest. Oh, wow. Okay. But their criteria is pretty strict. So you can't, you can only purchase in, um, well, pre-COVID, it was central Tokyo, central Osaka, central Fukuoka. These days, it's mostly just Tokyo, Yokohama, maybe. Hopefully that'll ease up again, but that really limits your selection. And they also would not allow you to be creative with tenanting. So they appoint their own designated property manager who will only let you lease out to standard long-term Japanese tenants which obviously reduces your potential uh, yield because you can't do any short-term rentals, Airbnb, uh, commercial rentals, anything of that sort. It has to be strictly residential and strictly long-term leases. Wow, that is really interesting. So would you say most of your buyers are cash buyers that are looking to invest with you guys? Almost all of them, Almost yeah. Them. Um, we now have, for the first time in, in nine years, we now have a handful of, of people who are actually uh, purchasing with loans. Mm -hmm. uh, but yeah, 99% of them are cash buyers. Okay. And you mentioned some of the different yields and different rates in other countries. Based on that, I'm, I'm assuming you have less traffic from American buyers, let's say, especially coming from the commercial world. Do you see that? Not recently. When we started out, it was like that. So post GFC, um, America had a 
plethora of good deals. People could find um, distressed properties, high-yielding properties in a lot of spaces around the country. As things improved in the U.S. since 2015 or 16 or so, we started seeing a lot more traffic coming in from the U.S., Canada as well. Um, which wasn't the case in previous years. I'm guessing this is because the market sort of dried up as far as high yields go. So they did start looking at overseas properties. And these days, I think maybe 30% of our clientele is North American. And with the rest of them, about half of them are still Australia and Singapore, because those are places that are always been uh, oh, wow. okay. quite unaffordable and quite low on the yield. So they've always been internationally savvy and looking for opportunities abroad. And the rest are sort of a um, bit of European, some Asian, Thailand, Malaysia, um, New Zealand, a few other countries, but more, more and more US and Canada these days, actually. And so when you find, let's say, depending on that certain buyer's profile and their criteria, if they have such a unique criteria and profile, how are you able to find the resources to be able to actually make that transaction happen? Let's say you're outside of your network or the major cities that you've formerly worked in. Are you having to find a brand new agent in the new city, property management company, the title company? I mean, all those folks from end to end, those vendors, uh, is that a brand new search and effort for your team as well? Yeah, but this is what we do on a regular basis. So obviously, if we worked with a particular agent in the past, then they'll be sending us their listings before they actually hit the MLS websites so we can get our foot in the door quicker. And some of them are national companies. So if we tell a national Japanese real estate uh, agency that we're looking for properties in this and that particular location, then they would be able to uh, contact the local office, maybe not in that city, but in a nearby city who handles that area and help us find listings. And if we can and get it through our already established channels, then we just go online like everybody else does. And once we've done one or two deals with a particular agent, once we've placed one or two tenants with a particular property manager, then we've got that city covered. We will try to expand our network just so that we have an alternative in case for some reason they can't serve us or they don't serve us as well as they used to. And um, But depending on the city, I mean, the bigger cities would have more, more alternatives. In some cities, there's only one or two uh, agents that we can work with. So we work with what we have. Typically, what are some of the biggest issues that the property managers or that you guys are finding from your property management team? Tenant issues um, Tenant issues in Japan are a bit different from other countries. So there's not as many payment issues. There's no deadbeats. There's no forced evictions. You very rarely have to take anyone to court. Oh, really? Very rare here. Um, but we've got other issues. So we've got elderly tenants and um, socially isolated tenants that just don't communicate with any uh, neighbors. They don't open the doors and the windows, which obviously affects the interior of the property, um, especially if they're elderly people who tend to also smoke like a chimney. Um, oh, so okay. if you've got one of these tenants who's moved out after, and they stay a lot longer than in other countries as well, which is a good thing on the one hand. Um, but on the other hand, if you've got a tenant who's socially isolated and lived in his own little cubicle for 10 or 15 years and then moves out, there's obviously going to be a lot of renovation to do. And the place was not being properly maintained, especially if they're male, I'm sorry to say. And um, on the worst end of that scale, a sort of reclusive, socially isolated, destitute, elderly, and then dies in the property, which does also happen on a probably a far more frequent base than it does in other countries. And then there's insurance to cover most of the costs associated with that, but it's a lot of it's a big hassle once that happens in the property as well. So there had to be certain procedures. There has to be a, like a Buddhist purification ceremony that needs to be done 
after the death and then you have to advertise a special condition when you're advertising for new tenants to let them know that somebody died in the property that's obviously going to either reduce or just um, leave you with a non-existent rent for the next couple of years which you are again covered for by insurance some applications for court to retenant the property make sure the police has done the investigation before you actually touch or remove any of the stuff just to make sure the death was natural causes and so forth so that can be a bit of a hassle and we had a kind of horror story but we had a tenant who actually passed away in the bath in the midst of a hot summer month and it took about two or three weeks to for somebody to actually uh, notice what happened there and long story short water leaked from the bath yeah. into the property below his and so forth so i mean that particular aspect oh, wow. of um the elderly population in japan uh, can be a bit of a challenge and what about the present day situation over the past few months how has the tokyo games and obviously the postponement of it and obviously the planning of it over the last few years how has that made i would assume a sizable impact within the real estate market uh, the highs and lows especially low of this year but uh, can you walk us through when the bid initially came out and what sort of impact that created i would assume especially for a lot of the vacation homes or within tokyo and throughout uh, various other cities that the games were being played in and then now with the postponement how uh, that's looking and how everybody's preparing for 21 now um, well, like you say, there's been a lot of ups and downs there. So generally speaking, the Olympic, the bid for the Olympic Games and then the decision and then the preparation, that all came as tailwind to an already upward streak that we've had here um, since our last PM came into, uh, into his uh, position in late 2012. And he's kicked off some economic reforms, which were more or less successful to, to various uh, uh, various degrees. But generally speaking, the market in central areas, major cities, again, Tokyo, Osaka, Fukuoka, Nagoya, were all going upwards. And then with the Olympic Games, that further accented that um, particular rise in prices. The thing is that those economic changes did not trickle down people's pockets. So property prices went up, but salaries did not. And salaries not going up meant that you can't really raise the rent. So the rents remained stagnant while the property prices kept going up, which created a gap and really compressed yields in those major cities. So again, Tokyo and Osaka mainly. Um, then with holiday rentals, yes, there was a big boom of holiday rentals up to um, 2018, at which point the government, due to various reasons, decided to clamp on that a little bit, building owner unions. So again, in case of a co-owned block, uh, to give owner unions the right to prohibit short-term rentals in their own building, and given the right to local municipalities to put further either bans or limitations on people practicing that. So that put a bit of a cooler over the whole short-term rental and vacation holiday market. Um, to a point, I mean, you can still, the sort of sweet spot now is a monthly rental. So monthly rentals don't actually fall under the... Um, short-term legislation as long as they're done with the proper lease in place and you can get higher rent if you lease a property by the month as opposed to by the year or two years uh, so people are still doing that but the uh, sort of airbnb guests coming and going without a lease kind of thing that's really not very profit or at least not as profitable as it used to be unless you're actually applying for um, an inn or hotel license or alternatively, if you're living in the property or very close to it and are going to be handling the management uh, by yourself, then it does become in, uh, 
profitable venture. But for um, hands-off sort of remote investors, like most of our customers are, unless they're buying a property that's big enough to justify applying for a license and putting a management company that can handle this sort of thing in place, it's just not going to be very profitable. Definitely not worth the headache anymore. And then with COVID and the cancellation of the games, the tenancy market, so the tenancy side of things has not been hugely affected mm. by that. Oh, wow. That's pretty interesting. And we are seeing longer vacancies if we do get a vacancy at this time, because people are just not moving around as much and not looking for new places. But there haven't been mass firings or people having to move out because they can't pay the rent. I mean, Japan is pretty protective of, of staffers uh, in that sense of things. So we haven't seen major layouts or people suddenly moving in mass out of apartments or anything of that sort. So tenancy things are still pretty stable. Price-wise, Tokyo and Osaka have seen some pretty significant uh, price drop now something like really? 20 30 percent either on the original listing price yeah or at least negotiable to that point which we couldn't have been mm -hmm. doing in the last four or five years so tokyo and osaka just to, to jump back again tokyo and osaka because of the economic growth and the the new pm and then the olympics tokyo and osaka have now climbed back to their pre-bubble days. They're very close to it before COVID hits. And then after that, it sort of dropped down a little bit. We're now seeing a much softer market in Tokyo and Osaka mainly, also in Nagoya, which also took a bit of a hit. A lot of that is due to those holiday properties, um, which have now lost their bookings for the next uh, 12 months at least. So all of them, especially the ones who have got a, have got a mortgage to pay are, are fire selling the properties now. So if you're looking for a, a house or a small building that was primarily being used for short-term stay holiday makers, you're probably going to get a very good deal on that. And the other side of it is people who were sort of riding the Olympic wave and kept holding on to their assets, hoping that the price will continue to rise until the Olympics. And they're now a bit panicky as well. So there's a, a few good deals in Tokyo and Osaka to be found. The rest of the country has not been affected that much. Um, again, holiday properties aside, if you're looking mm -hmm. for holiday property types, um, they are selling quite cheaply all around the country. But your standard long-term tenancy sort of uh, apartments or small buildings have not been affected to any significant degree. And um, again, Tokyo and Osaka aside. Wow. Yeah, 20, 30%, that's pretty steep. <laughs> But uh, yeah, good that they've at least come back or, you know, it's somewhat. Uh... It gets um, easier or harder to negotiate as the numbers are announced, right? So mm -hmm. when we see a peak of COVID cases in Tokyo, the, the week following that, I'll probably be able to put in some uh, heavily discounted offers. Mm -hmm. If things look like they're stabilizing again, it'll sort of inch towards um, the previous situation again. So it comes and goes. It's uh, kind of hard to tell these days. Right. Can you talk a little bit more about the present day situation as far as the lockdown, any restrictions, commerce, how businesses, their their employees have been able to work around and move about, and also the Japanese stock market and how some of these larger companies are faring. Well, the stock market has not taken a big hit mm -hmm. to date. They've taken a much bigger hit with the announcement uh, three days ago that the current prime minister is resigning. Oh, really? Oh, wow. Yes, okay. uh, we just heard that on Friday. So I think the Nikkei took a bit of a hit following that. With COVID, I mean, it obviously didn't do as well as it did pre-COVID, but not very different to other parts of the world. Businesses, I mean, th there haven't been any official lockdowns. Uh, the restrictions that they have placed here were more of a could you kindly and if you wouldn't mind kind of thing. And the Japanese population as a rule does tend to comply with these sort of requests. So there hasn't been a need for a major lockdown. Um, 
I gotta say the foreign population in Japan is taking the situation a bit more serious than the local Japanese are. Um, so they're still out and about in huge numbers. They're all wearing masks, but they're still, um, they're still milling together on the busy trains in the mornings and in the uh, peak hour in the afternoon as well. They're still working in crowded offices. I think 30 or 40% last I heard of companies have actually managed to uh, put in place work from home um, environments for their staffing. Um, but it's very far from what you see in other parts of the world. I mean, there are quite a few people still commuting to work and sitting in crowded offices with masks on and mm -hmm. trying to social distance. I mean, shops have put in um, sort of stickers on the floor to ask people to uh, keep their distance when they're standing in line and asking people to put a mask on when they're coming into the store. But again, nothing, nothing really hardcore, nothing too strict. It's just sort of trusting people to comply with common sense and... Mm -hmm. I guess, I mean, there's been a bit of a, a bit of vague reporting here. So we're not always 100% sure there aren't that many tests being conducted. So we're never 100% sure if the numbers that we're getting are actually accurate or not. Um, but the hospitals are not, you know, they haven't come crashing down. So I guess mm -hmm. we're still still managing things uh, to some degree. And the Japanese don't tend to be, um, I mean, they keep their distance as a rule, even you know, before COVID, they, you wouldn't see people like uh, hugging or, you know, talking very close to each other's faces in the streets. So social distancing was a thing here before COVID as well. How about the political structure, especially that's one major thing that I really like to evaluate, especially when I'm making an investment outside of the market that I know very well. Can you talk a little bit more about the political structure, how that is in general, and then more specific if there's over the last nine years of you guys starting the company, how the regulations have changed within the real estate industry, if anything drastic happened. And then also a little bit more about the PM resigning on Friday. That seems like pretty major news. Japan is democratic as a rule in a lot of aspects. So it's a very capitalist, uh, uh, capitalistic country, uh, very consumer oriented. Um, land here is freehold in 99% of cases, which is, I think, the only place in Asia that actually land remains freehold for foreigners and non-foreigners alike. So there are no limits on property ownership or land ownership unless it's a historically or agriculturally protected area. Living here as a foreigner, you wouldn't, mm -hmm. you would definitely have issues with the way, I mean, there are anti-discrimination laws, but they're not really being enforced. So if you're a foreigner looking for a place to rent or to buy, you would be financially it difficult. I mean, people are still comfortable here saying, uh, sorry, we don't serve foreigners. Whereas in other countries, you'd be taking them to court here. It's just not doable. If you are not a naturalized citizen, meaning if you've not applied for a Japanese passport and gave up all of your other passports, there's a question of whether you'll be eligible for uh, unemployment or disability benefits if anything happens to you. And there have been some court cases where uh, judges have ruled that um, because the, um, the applicant is a permanent resident and not a citizen, then they're not, um, they're not eligible for unemployment or even retirement funds. Uh, pension funds. And there are even restaurants or some establishments that um, have signs on the window saying no foreigners, or, you know, you walk into a bar or restaurant and they very clearly are sending you out again because you're not Japanese. And that still happens here. Unfortunately, you still get a, they call it the gaijin. Uh, gaijin means uh, it's a slang term for foreigners. So there's what they call the gaijin seat on the train. Like if you're sitting on the train and the train is completely packed, there's a good chance that no one's going oh, to wow. be sitting next to you, even if you got free seats next to you, just because they're, um, I mean, I, I guess all racism is based in fear, but in their case, it's, it's not violent or aggressive. It's more a case of they're terrified of 
you might address them in English and they might lose face, which is for a Japanese person is the worst possible thing that could happen. They might lose face by uh, not being able to respond to you or speaking English, which is going to be uh, incorrect right. and so forth. And the same goes for companies that refuse to work with you or service providers that refuse to give services. What they're most mm. terrified of is um, things not being smooth and mistakes being made and misunderstanding occurring. And then they would not be able to provide what they think is the, uh, the service that they should be providing. So I, I'm, not, I'm not saying this to excuse it in any way because um, it is, in a sense, racism, but it's not, it's not a hate of foreigners as mm. much as it is uh, just fear of foreigners, right. if that makes sense. Some sort of... Uh misunderstanding or some sort of uh yeah uh, would you say respect as well even though it may look like racism on the outside but there is some sort of respect or fear to be able to communicate together in a very twisted kind of way yeah so it's um i mean for, for a japanese person the japanese mentality is basically that uh, making a mistake whether it's in school or at work or in a in a, in a social setting making a mistake or putting your foot in your mouth is, is the worst possible thing that could happen to a person and you see that from a very early age. I mean, they educate them in school to not ask questions because asking a question is show, shows that you haven't understood something. And if you, you know, if you must ask a question, you should come to the teacher at the end of the lesson and then ask them sort of privately. And then that translates onto a work environment as well. So you're not supposed to show that you're disputing any of the regulations. You're not supposed to show that you're um, disagreeing or not sure about anything. Everything is supposed to go as smoothly as possible. And because they value the service that they give very highly, customer service is like the, the pinnacle of uh, Japanese consumerism. So for them to be in a situation where they would potentially not be able to provide the service that they think they should be providing, because of a cultural or language misunderstanding is 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 a is a big no-no for them. So a lot of it comes from that. So if I went to a restaurant in a particular city, I may not be served or get uh, the service, especially being evidently not Japanese. In some places and to some degree, I mean, it's not the common thing. I would say 80 or 90% of the places you yeah. walk into, that wouldn't be an issue. Um, but even, mm -hmm. you know, 10, 20% of cases where it does happen is um, in other countries, again, unthinkable, right? And um, even when they do serve you, you'll often notice like their eyes widening when you walk up to them, kind of, oh my God, I'm going to have to speak English kind of thing. So, I mean, it's it's just those, right. some people call it microaggressions. For me, I just find it funny, but um, it does happen a fair bit. Um, but the more serious issue is housing, right? So if you're a foreigner in Japan, especially if you just moved into Japan, you don't still, you still don't have a, a history of Japanese pay slips that you can present. You don't know anybody who can sign up as your guarantor or emergency contact person sort of thing you are going to be denied housing. And that's a lot more than 10, 20%. That happens, uh, I would say the majority of companies would refuse housing to you. So unless you work with a company, again, that catering specifically to foreigners, you're gonna be uh, you're gonna be running into uh, trouble and walls time and time again. Uh, I, was, I was just gonna ask, is that something that you guys assist with then? So I'm not looking to just invest, I'm looking to simply live there, let's say for six months a year at a time outside of the university. So it's not campus housing or anything like that, it's private housing. And I need a guarantor, I need somebody to co-sign with me. Is that some sort of service that even on such a limited or small basis that you are able to provide? We usually don't provide rental oriented services, but we know of quite a few companies that you can definitely contact who will help you with that. So we would definitely refer you to a company. Mm -hmm. And I mean, if somebody insists on, on just being able to research the whole market as opposed to just the properties offered by those particular companies, then yes, we're happy to come in and assist. But unfortunately, because of the nature of things here, 
Um, as far as rentals are concerned, we can't really provide any sort of guarantee that we'll be able to help because the market is quite difficult for foreign renters, unfortunately. For purchases, mm -hmm. for purchases again, it's not as bad simply because you don't need to provide um, any guarantees or, or um, security deposits or anything of that sort, especially if you're buying cash. That's not a huge issue. But as people living here know, if you want to walk into an agency or even a bank and start discussing a loan or financing or purchasing a property, even if you are a resident and even if you do speak, read and write Japanese, it's always a better idea to have a Japanese um, friend or acquaintance or spouse or something like that come in with you and do the talking kind of thing. Otherwise, they can freak out and just say no on the basis of you being a foreigner. So for purchase, I mean, again, for purchase, we can definitely help. For rentals, we can refer people to companies that can help. And how about the actual transaction portion of it? We've source the property, we found it, we love it, we make an offer. Do you typically work with a real estate attorney or a firm that specializes in that documentation of the purchase agreement? And then once negotiated and accepted, uh, do you guys have, uh, let's just say it is a cash offer. Do you guys have a due diligence period? And typically how long does that last on a residential property? And then the closing of getting all the ducks in a row with, let's say the title company, how long does that process take? And then ultimately to close and actually get the keys in your hand. Well, there's no separate escrow and title company and property lawyer here. It's all done by the same entity. They're called judicial scrivener. So they're um, government, uh, government licensed and authorized. They're lawyers, but they're not barristers. So they can't represent you in court, but they can do all, all and any other legal procedures. And we work with a few companies that specialize in the property side of that. So they will be drawing the documents. They'll be inspecting the title deed to make sure there's no legal liens on it or anything of that sort. And then they will handle the ownership transfer on the day of settlement on your behalf and provide the new registration documents and the new title deed. With due diligence here, just because the market is very big, it's the world's second uh, property investment market. Size-wise, it's second only to the USA. And so because it's a very big and active market and because properties can be um, on the cheap side here compared with the other countries, the market tends to move very quickly. So you're usually not going to receive, especially if the, for the cheaper properties, you're not going to have due diligence information available to you pre-offer. So you do need to submit your offer based on the numbers and location and the age of the property and that sort of thing. If the numbers work for you, you put in your offer and on the offer, you write that it's pending due diligence. And at that point, the seller and the agent will start collecting and providing the due diligence info. So and um, if it's a building you want to, especially the older ones, you want to look at the building's renovation history. If it's a co-owned building, you want to see how much is in the reserve funds pool. You want to look at the tenancy lease to see um, if the tenant uh, has had any issues in the past, if they're a good profile tenant or a less than ideal profile tenant. All of that information will start to become available post-offer. And then we would review that, make recommendations to either pull back or maybe reduce the price because something is less than ideal or alternatively just to go ahead with the deal. And then we, along with the agent and the judicial scrivener, will handle the uh, settlement unless you're in Japan and you're comfortable with Japanese and you'd like to attend the meeting in person. Otherwise, we'd handle it all on your behalf and then just provide the documentation once it's been issued. And what about some unique asset types within, you know, I'm... I'm picturing or envisioning Tokyo in my mind. And I've seen the capsule hotels due to the limited space, unique opportunities, let's say like other large metropolitan cities like in New York, um, are there is parking garages, parking lots. Is that an asset type that there is a lot of capital behind unique structuring? 
where you can keep your vehicle stored. Hotels and specific hotels, especially to maximize the space that's being there. Let's say storage facilities for folks that are living in very small spaces that need to buy a storage space. I mean, are all those uh, large where there is a lot of money going behind those spaces or is it for the common foreign investor that's something that you wouldn't recommend until they've gone through the residential route, they've diversified their portfolio enough, and then you dive into that space. What's your take on that? Um, well, alternative asset classes are generally speaking, yes, they are here and, and it's a very active market. There are some areas that are more active than others, um, and that changes with the times now. Um, but everything that you've just mentioned, aside from maybe a logistics like warehouse and shipping facilities, everything that you've mentioned that I would classify under alternative asset classes um, are much more hands-on involved than a standard residential commercial lease, right? So. If you've got a uh, parking facility, if you're running, uh, for example, shared office or a shared home, both of which are very popular asset classes now, and aged care facilities are another one, some of the retail properties, all of these require a regular management procedure of collecting income, attending to a client or guest uh, requirements a lot more than a standard uh, long-term lease property would require. So we, we're definitely um, happy to assist and we have assisted quite a few people in, in purchasing these kinds of properties, even with a hotel, but they need to bear in mind that they're going to be a lot more hands-on involved than they would be with standard properties, right? So as long as you're okay, let's just put it this way, you're running a business, right? You're not, it's an investment property as well, but your main profit driver here is going to be running the business mm -hmm. on a day-to-day -day right. basis. So we and whichever management company we're going to put in place can definitely uh, take the vast majority of the work off you. But even on the basis of bottom line decision making, there's going to be a lot more of those to make. So you're not going to be hearing from us um, just when a tenant moves out every two years or if something happens and requires maintenance two or three times a year, you're going to be hearing from us on a monthly or weekly basis. And you're going to, be ha uh, you're going to have to make decisions or at least be informed on decisions on a monthly or weekly basis. So I would say, make sure you've got the bandwidth just to handle that sort of thing. And if you do, they can be a lot more prof profitable than long-term leases. Yeah. And how does that communication flow typically work? So since you are the proxy for the investor, the management team will flow that entire communication, the decision-making to your team, and then your team then relays that on to the investor and then backwards in the opposite direction in terms of the information decision-making. That's the way it usually works. There's some things that we're not going to ask investors about because they're classified as legal emergencies. So for example, uh, electrical or water issues, right. if the hot boiler goes or there's an exposed wire or um, uh, security related issues, for example, the front door doesn't lock anything of that sort, we have to attend to immediately. Plumbing issues, we have to immediately send the person over to take care of that, whatever it costs. And um, anything else is up to the investor. So again, if they want to be fully hands-on involved, um, we're going to ask them about any expense, even if it's 50 bucks. Or if they're comfortable just receiving reports and, and they trust us with the management, then we would probably have a bit more leeway up to a certain degree. Usually we wouldn't be making um, expense decisions that are over a thousand or two thousand bucks on their behalf, even if they do give us the leeway, because we, we want to present them with a few options or a second, second opinion, that sort of thing. But if they are comfortable with us deciding on, for example, potential tenants on our own and deciding on renovation choices, if and when a property becomes vacant, we think it's a good idea to put in a laundry bay, for example, which wasn't there before, or to put in wooden floors 
flooring instead of linoleum, that sort of thing. If they do give us the leeway, then we can release them from making decisions and just give them a bottom line. So it's really entirely up to the investor. Some people like to micromanage. Some people just prefer to not be bothered. So yeah. it's up to them. Let's say I'm in the in the latter group where, for numbers sake, I've got million dollars cash. I am not quite interested in spending all the time, the legwork, building out a diversified portfolio with whatever a million bucks could buy. I'm more interested in investing in a larger fund. Is that an opportunity that you guys have and seek out where there's syndicates or group investment deals where I can be one among many investors that's looking at, into, let's say, a $25 million fund? I'm one of the investors involved and it's a very diversified portfolio. Maybe uh, they're even leveraging some debt that I personally, as an individual foreign investor, could not get my hands on. Are those some opportunities and have you been able to facilitate that for other investors? We have been asked about this a lot and we have introduced a lot of our existing and potential clients to each other to try and form the syndicate together. Mm -hmm. um, we're not fund managers. So if you're looking to invest in a, in a REIT, in a real estate investment trust, we probably re make recommendations, again, based on your criteria and just refer you to where you can uh, invest in a fund or in a or in a REIT. If you're looking to actually syndicate and form a partnership yourself, then we would be able to introduce you to other people that might be interested in that. And for financing purposes, at least one of them would have to be a Japanese resident who can be co-signatory to the loan. Um, so if you're a syndicate of all strictly foreign investors, financing is still not going to be an option for you. Oh, really? But again, once you've set up a company here, I mean, for the purpose of the syndication, you're probably going to set up a, a corporate structure here in Japan. And once you do that, then there are more loans available to you. If one of your partners, again, is a Japanese resident who can be co-signatory, then a few years down the track, when the company starts to generate some business from its cash investments, then they would be eligible for more native Japanese financing options, which would be up to 90% LTV and would reduce your interest to maybe two, two and a half percent. Um, but that's down the track. And I can't tell you that any of our customers have actually um, felt comfortable enough with each other to actually do that. So we've got syndications of people that came as a group. So uh, some flatmates, uh, some family members, like a, a family office, you know, two brothers and a sister kind of thing, or a um, husband and wife and some of their family relatives, but they came to us as a group. So it's not a, the syndication was not actually that way. We helped them with, with the admin side of it, but we haven't actually helped them form the syndication. They actually knew each other uh, beforehand. Mm -hmm. Okay. And Ziv, I'm actually curious, what, uh, how did you get started in the real estate space and what led you to start this company and help out for investors? And what was your background even prior to uh, Nippon Tradings? I was, for a long time, I was in uh, project management, IT project management. That's my uh, previous professional life. So I did that for about 15 years. And then when my son was born, I wanted to just get out of the corporate lifestyle, wanted to set up my own business for whatever purpose. And I sort of married into Japan back in 2003. So I was traveling to and from Japan on an annual basis as was considering living here at some point in the future. And so for me, it was easy to look into Japan as an investment uh, environment as well. Just personally, I've owned and, and dealt with tenants back in Australia where I was living at the time. So for me, real estate was just a natural thing. I had a bit of at least a familiarity with it. So when I was looking to invest in Japan, I sort of drifted towards real estate uh, naturally. And the rest is like I told you at the start. I mean, we started off buying a few properties for our own and managing them and dealing with them and then sort of decided to offer that service to other people as well. 
That's amazing. Yeah, I absolutely love that, especially being a real estate guy to have an understanding of just different markets around the world and just understanding the nuances, the similarities and the different structures that can happen halfway around the world. So thank you so much for sharing all of that and just having that insight. But I know there's a lot more as it relates to real estate. Real estate cannot be broken down, especially in a foreign market within a short period of time. So would definitely love to chat with you again. Pleasure. Thank you so much. Thanks so much for listening to the show this week. You can subscribe wherever you get your podcast from. And while you're there, please do leave us a review if you feel so inclined. Or if you already have, please share with a friend that you think might enjoy the show.